And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. My next guest is Eric Hans. He is the director of the Center for Accountable Investment at the Center for International Private Enterprise. That's a Washington-based affiliate of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the National Endowment for Democracy. Eric has worked in Ukraine for years beginning as a Peace Corps volunteer and continuing as a business advisor and consultant. He was on the show about a year ago when the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, and we've invited him back now one year later to offer his reflections on the conflict. He joins us on Zoom from his office in Washington, D.C. Hey, Eric, welcome back. Hey, good afternoon, Tom. It's great to be here, and uh, it's uh, it's a year later, and I wish it were under happy happier circumstances. Yeah, boy, me too. Um, before we we start talking about the the current situation as you understand it, um, explain for us one more time what exactly it is that you do as part of this uh, Center for International Private Enterprise. Sure, uh, we work with business associations and free market oriented think tanks around the world. Uh, to develop their voice and allow them to advocate for their members' interests uh, in front of their government. We have a number of centers of excellence, of which the Center for Accountable uh, Investment is one. Uh, we work on anti-corruption issues, uh, trade issues, uh, accountable investment issues, women's economic empowerment, uh, all with a lens uh, uh, through the lens of the private sector uh, and having a good, uh, thorough feedback uh, with the government and a good relationship with the government. What's the current business climate in Ukraine? Are people in the private sector uh, able to, to, to you know, conduct uh, any amount of business? Uh, yes, uh, I, I spoke with Andy Hunter, the head of uh, American Chamber of Commerce in, in Ukraine, uh, a couple days ago, and and. You know, they did a survey recently which showed that the overwhelming majority, 80% plus of businesses, are still uh, fully operational. Uh, some that have had uh, um, some some physical damage. Uh, the the Oreo factory uh, was was destroyed, unfortunately. But there is there is plans and there is movement towards already rebuilding. Uh, I would note that you know even uh, infrastructure projects like the extension of the Kiev Metro uh, got started uh, this past weekend. And so Ukrainians are not waiting uh, uh, for the war to end. They're trying to take as much action as they can right now to hit the ground running. Is there a substantial foreign investment in infrastructure projects? Because President Zelensky certainly talked about the need for foreign investment down the road, uh, given the, the, you know, incredible nature uh, and, 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 uh, you know, extent of the damage that uh, Russia has inflicted. Yeah, there there is going to be a big need for foreign investment. It can't just come from government alone. The government can can start things going and, and help to create the right conditions. Uh, but we really need that the private sector to step in. There was a whole team from J.P. Morgan uh, in in Ukraine last week. Uh, you know, uh, Warren Buffett's son was was it was in Ukraine uh, late last year, uh, looking at agricultural opportunities uh, for investment. Um, there's, you know, kind of two tracks in Ukraine for, for economic development, uh, and this was under the Poroshenko government, uh, uh, called Brains and Grains. Uh, and so uh, the IT sector, the, the creative sector in, in Ukraine is, is re- re- really uh, uh, um, a, a key to um, uh, uh, developing the country and, and using the, the young talent that, that is there. Uh, and then, you know, the, the the grains portion, uh, with significant investment from large companies, uh, from from John Deere to to Carhill, uh, has invested a lot in, in research and development. 
uh, and the deployment of, of new product in the market. Uh, there has been a lot of infrastructure development uh, prior to the, the start of hostilities uh, in, in Black Sea ports, uh, which were some of the, the most modern uh, port infrastructure in the world. And uh, when it comes to the shipment of grain from Ukraine, because we heard, you know, right at the beginning of the war a year ago uh, about how crucial grain output from Ukraine was to to literally feeding the world, uh, particularly continents of Africa and, and other places, you know, are just very reliant on Ukrainian grain. There were agreements to allow a certain modicum, at least, of uh, that those shipments to uh, to leave Ukraine and, and uh, be distributed worldwide. Uh, has that continued? Are, are those agreements holding? The the agreements are, are, are holding. Uh, they, they could be uh, reinforced. And there's a big rush to develop uh, on-land infrastructure. But quite frankly, there's just, just not the capacity or the throughput to get things uh, uh, put through the Polish border uh, and the, uh, the Slovakian border. Uh, from the western part of Ukraine. It's just, it's just not there. And, you know, shipping things by ship is always going to be less expensive. And the volume uh, that, that is required for the export of, of Ukrainian grains is just so massive. The other issue that we're, we're learning from our business partners and, and, and network on the ground is that in these recently uh, freed territories of Ukraine, um, we see the, the mining is is extensive uh and there's going to be a lot of work to be invested in demining the fields in order to plant next year's or this year's harvest uh and, and so this could again negatively impact the output of the country when uh, president Zelensky came to uh, united states uh, for a very brief visit he addressed congress it was a very emotional event uh it was a very powerful event uh, certainly for americans um, where do you see the, the Ukrainian people when it comes to uh, their resolve? Uh, we hear a lot about uh, the, the you know, solidness uh, of the resolve of the Ukrainian people. Are they, uh, are, are they battering down the hatches and, and uh, prepared for a long, uh, extensive, continued conflict? Uh, are they confident that victory uh, in which I've heard President Zelensky describe as uh, having Russia get out of even Crimea and other places that they had uh, occupied, you know, for years before this latest invasion. Um, wh- where do you where do you see that that uh, level of resolve among uh, the population of Ukraine? Well, a year into the war, um, you know, the Ukrainians' resolve is, is as high as it has ever been. It's a, it's a whole-of-society effort, and we saw that from day one of the invasion, where civil society, government, uh, a business, everyone knew what this was about. This is about the existence of Ukraine as a state. And we've seen from the freed territories what happens when Russia gets control of those areas. There's massive war crimes, massive destruction of and expropriation of property, and just a, a complete rule of bandits uh, in in the, the those occupied territories, and so this is this is the future that that Ukraine is fighting for. They are fighting for for not only uh, you know the, their territory and 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 their uh, their right to be be a nation. They're they're fighting for the survival of their culture, their heritage, uh, their language, uh, and really the freedoms which we enjoy. If there ever was a just war. This is that war. 
Uh, President uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, continues his uh, anti-corruption campaign, uh, regardless of the the conflict with Russia. Uh, you have uh, done a lot of anti-corruption work as well in Kiev and other places in in Ukraine. Uh, tell us about how that's going. He, there were some very famous uh, or very high-profile firings uh, by President Zelensky uh, from uh, of people uh, in his government not too long ago. Yeah, and and this goes to prove that that Ukrainians fully comprehend the risks involved here, and they they want to make sure that the Western partners that are supporting the country right right now uh, have confidence in in Ukraine. Ukraine's fighting two wars. It's fighting a war of aggression uh, and and conflict uh, in Donbas and in Crimea. Uh, it's also fighting an internal war against corruption. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, the civil society of Ukraine has been resilient and, and continues to be resilient. And to point out all of these uh, these these corruption schemes and and opportunities for corruption um, through martial law and the war process, some of these these protections that that you know the Ukrainian government had entered into during uh, uh, Poroshenko's time, such as Prozoro, which is a an online public procurement process, uh, which is is completely transparent. And allows you know, third parties to go in and review contracting data. Um, those have been, you know, uh, um, gone around uh, for good reason, and and there is a reason that the Ukraine doesn't want to expose itself. Uh, if everything's transparent, then Russians can see it as well. And if they're ordering, you know, blankets or or or, or pencils or whatever, what have you, that would give an indication or or intelligence to Russian. Uh, 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 Russian state, and they don't want to give that intelligence. So there's this interesting balance or rebalancing going on. It's just how much information can be made public in the interest of transparency and accountability versus uh, uh, the need for some secrecy, especially around uh, operations and operational capacity within Ukraine. Yeah, that's fascinating and incredibly complicated and nuanced. Um, We have a a uh, question from Neil, who's listening, uh, who says, is there a significant anti-Semitic population in Ukraine that w- was used by Vladimir Putin to justify this Nazi claim that he's making to, to justify his invasion of Ukraine? Uh, you, you know, uh, it is it is one of those things. It's, it's made up out of thin air. If, if there was a survey done by RFERL a few years prior to the inv- invasion that, that showed, uh, that indicated that Ukraine was, in fact, the least anti-Semitic country in Europe, uh, <laughs> where you know the 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 presence of a, a Jewish president, uh, the uh, the opening and the the robust uh, uh, cultural activities of the main synagogue uh, in in Kiev, which was a a, a a puppet theater under Soviet times, and the chief rabbi of Ukraine coming out and just just saying that how ludicrous this was. Look. I'm not saying that that anti-Semitism doesn't exist anywhere. It it is it does exist, um, but I'm saying that the uh, complete fabrication of this kind of Nazi rationale it, it's beyond uh, a parody. Uh, it, in the most recent news, just the last couple of days, the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, met with Xi Jinping uh, in Beijing. Uh, people are worried that China may uh, begin to arm. 
Russian troops. Uh, they have suffered heavy, heavy casualties uh, and uh, have been, you know, uh, very widely seen as uh, very inept in their uh, military strategy uh, in their aggression in Ukraine. But uh, what does the business community uh, think about this? Uh, are, in fact, all eyes on China uh, in Ukraine these days? I would say that that all eyes are, are forward in, in meeting the Russian threat where it's at, and that's that's physically in, in Donbas and, and and protecting its territory. Um, but there is this concern uh, because of of the Chinese capacity, industrial capacity, to support uh, Russia. Uh, you know, we've seen Iran to to, uh, to support uh, Russia with with drones. Uh, now it's un- unclear. Uh, what uh, uh, was made in that deal with Iran? Was it uh, for more advanced uh, technology in the nuclear sector? We don't know the second half of that deal. In the case of China, um, I think that they're trying to walk a a very fine line uh, between this uh, uh, unlimited friendship as as, uh, Xi Jinping and and Vladimir Putin entered into just before the Olympic Games uh, and uh, the very practical implications. But we do have here the largest importer of commodities in the world, which is China, and the largest exporters of commodity in the world, which is which is Russia. And it's an interesting pairing. Uh, and it, 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 it will, you know, uh, to my mind, uh, you know, be an issue that will have to be contended with in the future. I think I think that the United States has made it very clear that if China does move forward and does supply uh, uh, um, munitions and, and offensive capability to Russia, then there will be comp- con- consequences. Now, I think that they've less, left those comp- consequences ambiguous on purpose. A uh, question about NATO. I think we have a listener who has a question as well. Uh, how how high on the list of priorities for Ukraine is membership in NATO? That's something that began being discussed uh, the minute that Russia uh, crossed the border into Ukraine a year ago. Uh, is this uh, something that President Zelensky is uh, very much committed to? Is he going to be you know doing a, a, a full all out uh, uh, effort to to see that happen sooner rather than later? Yeah, it is. It is a, a, a big uh, a motivation for Ukraine, and and with those NATO commitments, uh, you know, if you're familiar with with the application process to NATO, there's a whole bunch of reforms that have to go on in terms of democracy, uh, in terms of market or market oriented economics, uh, that would be applicable and, and and welcome by the business community in Ukraine. So it's not just about military capacity, but Ukrainians see NATO membership or potential NATO membership as a way to continue to drive and have that carrot to reform uh, their internal uh, markets and their internal systems. I mean, right now, as of today, the the fighting in Ukraine does tend to be concentrated in the east. So people in Kiev, people in Lviv, other places around the country uh, are, are not experiencing uh, the war the same way that people in the Donbass region are. Is that accurate? Uh, what's the, the general sense of, uh, you know, where the danger zones are? Well, again, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not there, but, but talking to our staff, who's still, still there, uh, talking to friends and family in, in Ukraine, we do, you know, see a, a bit of, of, of bifurcation between the very front line uh, and the rest of the country. But you know, Russia has, has continued with these drone strikes, uh, the, the missile strikes. Uh, and so, you know, uh, you know, death, death can come from above at, at any time. And there is, you know, this, this kind of ongoing uh, um, 
uh, you know, air raid signals going on throughout the day, throughout the night. Just uh, I have have my my own phone uh, tuned into it, the, the Telegram channel. It lets me know when when you know the the, the air raid siren goes off where where my family is located. And so, yeah, it's 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 still a threat, but it's it, it is different. Eric Hans is the director of the Center for Accountable Investment at the Center for International Private Enterprise, a Washington-based affiliate of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the National Endowment for Democracy. Eric, appreciate your insight and perspective as always. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And Slava Ukraini. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott joins me to talk about the conduit deal that he's struck with BGE. Plus, Baltimore Comptroller Bill Henry will weigh in on the deal, which he opposes. Here and Now is up next after news at the top of the hour, so stay tuned. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. You're listening to Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR.